0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We began looking at First Peter on the very first Sunday of the year, and we have been going through pretty much line by line and as we've done that, as, as Dave mentioned earlier, we've been confronted quite a bit by the topic of suffering, which is a great concern to Peter in this letter. And this morning, in the verses that we read, we're going to see a, a kind of a recapitulation of that theme and a summary, a sort of concluding statement, if you will, about what Peter has to say on the topic of suffering. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. In the text, in your order of worship, is verses 12 through 19. So hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You've probably noticed that I have a tendency when, when people aren't here on Sunday morning to share embarrassing stories about them. You can imagine the temptation this morning for me. Uh, there are a lot of interesting things about my wife Lori. One though that that she wouldn't mind me sharing is her favorite movie. You would think if you know her that her favorite film would be some sort of Jane Austen adaptation, but it isn't the case. Her favorite is actually the uh, HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, which is confusing to me. She doesn't like to sit and watch war movies with me, but this one she'll watch over and over again. And she has this ability when she watches something to memorize all the dialogue. So she can quote passages back to me over and over again. And there's a particular moment in Band of Brothers that that I think of when I read these words of Peter. I've shared this with some of you before. But it's, it's a moment right before the Battle of the Bulge when the guys of Easy Company are all advancing towards the German attack while everybody else is retreating and as they're advancing, because they're ill-equipped, they're basically scavenging ammunition and supplies from retreating soldiers as they go. And a jeep suddenly pulls up in the darkness. Driving the jeep is it's uh, Jimmy Kimmel, which is weird to, to think about, but uh, in a different lifetime. Yes, he drove that jeep up, full of ammunition, but as he handed it off, he turns to the commander, to Captain Winters, and he warns them that they shouldn't advance. They should retreat like everybody else because if they move forward they're going to be surrounded. And Captain Winters turns to him and says, "We're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded." In that moment, you see two men who have very different ideas of what their job is and how their fight is meant to be fought. One of them is used to being behind the lines. He's used to having support. The other one is used to being dropped into enemy territory having to scrounge and scavenge for whatever he can find in order to wage his battle. We're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. Now let me ask you something. If Peter were there, and Peter were being warned, look, Peter, maybe you shouldn't be quite so outspoken. Maybe you shouldn't go to the synagogue and talk about Jesus again today. And Peter said, hey, we're Christians. We're supposed to be. Would he say comforted, safe, secure? Maybe not. Maybe surrounded would be more like it. If you ask yourself why it is that 1 Peter is so concerned with the theme of suffering, and you may tell yourself, you know, Peter is, maybe he's a masochist. He just likes pain and he likes writing about pain. But I think that's not what's going on. I think Peter's responding to something that he sees And in these words, we get some insight into it. It's true. People often say this. Well, clearly, Peter is writing to the suffering church, the persecuted church, in order to encourage it. That's true. But that's not all that's going on. It's not just that Christians are being persecuted that motivates him. It's that they're being persecuted and they're surprised. They're being persecuted and they're reacting as if something strange is happening to them. And this was something Peter had seen over and over again during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who, when he could work a miracle and feed everybody, suddenly had crowds following him everywhere. But then, when he turned around and said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life, suddenly Jesus was on his own again. People weren't following him because it had gotten difficult, it had gotten strange. Seeing this, Peter had learned something. Seeing it in his own life, in his own uh, fair-weather faith, he had recognized not only that we will suffer in the name of Christ, but that when we suffer, we'll be surprised by it. We'll react as if nothing like this was meant to happen to us. And when that happens, it betrays a misunderstanding. It shows that, that there was something we weren't getting right. That we had an idea about what our fight was meant to be like that was totally wrong. And Peter wants to change that. Not just by berating us for being surprised. He doesn't just say, hey, suck it up, you're going to suffer. But he actually wants to give you a reason to see your suffering differently. He actually wants to say to you that it's time to stop being surprised by suffering and start rejoicing in it. Start rejoicing in it. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's nothing unusual. There's nothing strange about your suffering. But rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's a reciprocal rejoicing here. Yeah, there's a forward-looking rejoicing. There's there's looking into the future, having that future hope that all of God's promises will finally be fulfilled. And in that glorious day, we will rejoice. But even now, before that's happened, now in this state of already and not yet, where where God has done some of what He said He will do, but there are some things He has not yet done. Even now, as we suffer, Peter says, we ought to rejoice. He's not saying that we should enjoy suffering. He's not saying the problem is you think suffering is bad, but it's really good. He's not saying you should seek it out. We've talked about this before, but in the early church, in that time of persecution and martyrdom, it was actually considered to be a bad thing, a sinful thing to seek out martyrdom. It's prideful. If it came to you, if it was God's will for you, then you should embrace what He had for you. But don't seek it out. Don't seek out suffering. It's the same here. Don't confuse Peter's words. He's not saying rejoice that you are suffering. He's saying rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice as you suffer. As you share, he says. In Christ's suffering. We want to be more like Christ. We want to be more like Him. We want to follow after Him to be conformed to His image. And when we look at the image of Christ, we see a glorious Savior who suffered. Who was shamed and humiliated. And when we endure those same things for His sake, it actually draws us nearer to Him. We can participate in Christ in a way that we couldn't otherwise. Strange to say, suffering is bad. Pain is hurtful. And yet in our suffering and in our pain, God uses these things to draw us closer to Him. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're actually being blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, sometimes when uh, things aren't going your way, it can be really depressing. But there are other times that can actually be kind of validating. I don't know about you, but there are certain people that when they're on my case, when they're criticizing me, I say, hmm, I must be doing something right. I must be doing something right. And here, Peter is making a similar Although obviously, much more profound point, right? That when you suffer, when you are insulted for Christ, that says something. You must be doing something right. He says you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This suffering, this insult, it actually testifies to the Spirit working in you. Being insulted for the name of Christ is actually a blessing in the sense that it confirms the work of Christ. It confirms your union with Him. The Spirit resting upon you as a sign and a seal. You are one of His when you are insulted in His name. One of the things the Holy Spirit does for us as our comforter after Christ ascends is to serve as a sign and seal of the promises that God has made to us. The Spirit is His guarantee, as it were. It's His promissory note. He gives us His Spirit to show that although Christ has ascended, we have not been abandoned. That He intends to fulfill all of the good promises that He has made. When you consider the significance of the Spirit's role as a seal of our salvation, then you see that when the Spirit rests upon you, these insults truly are blessings. They truly are blessings. Although admittedly, it's hard to see it that way sometimes. It's hard to recognize in our suffering. It's hard to recognize in insults blessing. Sometimes when we try to rejoice in sufferings and setbacks, it feels false to us. It feels wrong. Because there's shame involved. It's interesting, when Peter talks about suffering, he's speaking of a particular kind of suffering. Not every kind of suffering is covered in what he's saying. Do you think about what it is that makes suffering unendurable? I think it has to do with the shame involved. The kind of suffering that is hardest to endure... Is a suffering that brings shame with it, and yet there's no shame in suffering for Christ. Peter says, "Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler." So if you think you're getting off? I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't really stolen anything big. I'm not truly an evil doer, but I do meddle sometimes. Peter, these things don't go together. Come on. Come on. Give us meddlers a break. You're going to suffer, he says, but don't suffer for this. He's reiterating something he said before. Right? Don't suffer because you deserve it. Suffer for doing good, he says, if that should be God's will. Don't suffer merely because you've done something wrong. All right? Not all of your suffering is suffering for Christ, in other words. Sometimes you suffer because of your sin, because of the choices that you've made. You suffer, honestly, because you deserve it. And I can say that because it's true for me as well. Not only some of what I've suffered in life, but I would say most of what I've suffered in life I've brought upon myself. I certainly can't say, oh, it's for Jesus that I've suffered these things. Typically, it's for stupidity that I've suffered these things. In order to validate ourselves, we like to tell ourselves that our suffering is suffering for Christ. And yet, when we suffer for what we've done, for what we've chosen, there's no glory in that kind of suffering. Right? And it's a terrible hypocrisy for Christians to take like, the suffering that we suffer because of our sin, because of our bad choices, and to tell ourselves and others that we've suffered for the name of Christ. There are, at this moment, a lot of people who are hateful and judgmental and spiteful and as a result are reviled by others and they happen to be Christians. And they comfort themselves with the thought that they're reviled because of (laughs) Christianness, their Christianity, their faith, when in fact they're reviled because of their arrogance. And their pride, their judgmental spirit, which doesn't savor at all of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes as Christians, we are susceptible to believing that anything that comes our way because we bear the name of Christ is undeserved. It's terrible. And yet oftentimes, we bring it upon ourselves, and worse, we bring it upon ourselves in His name. Peter wants you to know that your hatred, your covetousness, your manipulations will all have consequences, and those consequences do not sanctify. You are not suffering for Christ when your hatred gets its comeuppance, when your covetousness is punished, drives you bankrupt, when your manipulations backfire, that suffering is not for Christ. And that suffering does bring with it appropriate shame. We feel the shame of what we've done because it was wrong to do it. We're right to feel that shame. And yet, it is that very shame that Christ took upon Himself at the cross. It's for the shame, for the guilt of our sin that He died. Knowing this should help us be a little more honest with ourselves about what our shortcomings truly are. How we really measure up. You can embrace the shame of your sin because Christ has paid for it. You don't need to be haunted by it any longer. But if you suffer, Peter says, suffer for doing good. Suffer for Christ. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering, I think, really is tied up with shame. There are a lot of things that would be easier to endure if the shame weren't part of it. You could be rich or you could be poor. There'd be no shame in being poor. Right? You could do good with your life just because you don't have a big house and a new car. What does that matter? What does it mean in the overall scheme of things? It means nothing. The difficulty is the shame, the sense that other people judge you, that they look down on you, that they don't think of you as their equal, and it eats away at you. It's shameful what you suffer. But let me ask you this. Compare the suffering of someone who doesn't make as much money as the guy next to him with the suffering of a mother giving birth to a new child. Who suffers more? The mom is going to say, it's me. Like, you're suffering nothing. You have no idea what suffering is right now. And you shouldn't even talk about suffering. But is there shame in it? No. There's glory in it. There's beauty in it. And so however painful it is, that kind of suffering is endurable. It's endurable. Suffering, apart from shame, is different. And this is the kind of suffering that we're being called to here. Hebrews 12 too, says that for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That was his attitude towards shame. If you looked at him suffering in the streets, bloodied, naked on the cross, nailed up before men, displayed, humiliated, and you thought, oh, that's shameful. How embarrassing for Jesus. He despised the shame. It was nothing to him in comparison to the value Of what he did. He felt no shame in making the sacrifice that he made and being brought low and being humiliated as he was by his incarnation, by his life, his suffering, and his death. There was no shame in it. There was glory in it. Jesus says to us that when you suffer in my name, though men may look down upon you, there is no shame in it. There's glory. There's glory. If we want to follow after Jesus, we need to learn to despise the shame that accompanies the suffering. And we have to learn not to let fear of suffering keep us quiet about the world's only hope. Peter makes an interesting bridge here that may not make sense at first thematically because he goes from talking about suffering to talking about judgment. And at the end of our passage, we read these words For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, Earlier, in chapter 3, Peter alluded to the salvation of Noah and his family. That salvation in the ark. And if you think about that salvation, which is so iconic, for biblical authors. There was something about it that's a little bit different than the way that we think of salvation. Noah and his family, they were saved, as it were, by the skin of their teeth. It's not that the floodwaters never came close to them. The, the waters raged all around them and laughed at them. It was only the walls of the ark that kept them alive. They were saved by, by inches of wood, or cubits of wood, That's what preserved them from destruction. That was their salvation, humanly speaking. Judgment didn't miss them by a mile. It came close enough to touch, to feel on your skin, to to breathe in, to smell the saltiness of it. And yet they were saved. When we think about judgment, though, the way we think about it is something that will miss us by a mile. When we think about our salvation, we think about it a little bit differently than New Testament authors tend to do. We have a relaxed view of things. So to us, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense to get all of these encouraging words and then to have Peter suddenly talk about judgment and then talk about judgment in these terms. If the righteous is scarcely saved, where's your assurance, Peter? Do you like not believe in justification by grace alone? What's going on here? The righteous, he says, is scarcely saved. Now, for us, we often talk about salvation as if salvation was justification. Right? The beginning and end of salvation is the, the moment in time when we come to faith in Christ and see the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then we live our lives as Christians looking back on that event when I was saved in the past tense. But in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in a much more uh, complicated way. There is that past tense look at at justification, but there's also this present tense sanctification, this work of salvation happening now, and there's also this forward-looking anticipation of future glory, all of which is part of salvation as a whole. All of that is the work of salvation. All of that is the work of God's grace. So that when Paul speaks about salvation and his hope of future resurrection, he says things like this. This is in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, "...not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature think this way. Sounds like works righteousness. Paul's saying, look, I'm not saying that I've secured my salvation, that I've made it my own. I strive. I work for it. I I hope for it so that if, by any means necessary, I may experience the resurrection of the dead. And you're like, well, Paul, what's going on here? Let me ask you, do you think That modern believers believe more in justification by grace than Paul does? No. If Paul, believing what he believes, can speak this way, then maybe he's telling us something about how we should see our lives in Christ as well. We don't believe in salvation by grace more than Paul does, yet for him, salvation is not a thing to be complacent about. It's not a thing to look back and think, well, I'm glad I got that settled. Instead, it changes everything. And it motivates everything in this new life. Everything, all-consuming. Paul's life, after that experience on the road to Damascus, was all about salvation now. He preached it and he lived it. Nothing else was more important to him. There was no higher priority to strive towards. And every aspect of it mattered. Every bit of it was important. It's interesting, when you reflect on the doctrine that Paul espouses, the doctrine of grace and the way that he talks about grace, it's natural to wonder, to object even, that if I believed in grace the way Paul does, basically it's a license for sin. If if grace covers all of my sins, then sin on. Because all that means is more grace. Grace. And that's the question that that Paul's teaching anticipates, the rhetorical question that he addresses. Should we sin so that grace may abound? The doctrine of Christians ought to inspire that question, should we sin so that grace may abound? And yet the life of Christians should inspire the answer, by no means. God forbid. We believe as people whose sins are covered and we live as people who strive to be like the one who covered them. So for us, judgment is real. It's serious. And if it's true that those who are made righteous in Christ barely escape judgment, barely make it as it were, if we're saved by the skin of our teeth, if there's nothing between us and condemnation but the walls of that holy ark, then we should never be complacent about it. And we should certainly fear for and care for those outside. That structure. What hope is there for those who do not cling to Him? For those who are not behind those walls? Peter says none. And this reality, the reality of judgment, the seriousness of judgment is why we have to learn to rejoice in suffering for Christ. Because if you don't rejoice in it, you will avoid it. You won't do the things that lead to suffering. You will avoid saying the things that trigger the insults. And as a consequence of that, the world's only hope will go unspoken by you out of fear of suffering and shame. Until we learn to rejoice in suffering for Christ, then Christ's message of hope is silenced. I always love the passages in Scripture that that boil it all down and summarize it. You know, sometimes you can be overwhelmed by the Bible. There's so much that you're meant to know, so much that you're meant to learn. So occasionally, when you get one of these rare, almost like bullet pointy things, it's good, right? So I just have to like do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. One, two, three, yes! Right? That's it! That's it, the Micah mandate, I'll embrace it. And Peter actually gives us something similar at the end of our passage. All that he said about suffering, in all of its depth, and all of its complexity, we have difficulty getting our minds around it. He gives us something to hold on to. A statement that, that we can commit to memory, that we can pray, that we can live. Therefore, he says, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As simple as that. Instead of being preoccupied with ourselves, with our happiness, with our own fulfillment or lack thereof, we simply entrust our souls to a faithful creator and continue to do good. In other words, the consequences of your actions are in God's hands. Your role is simply to do what's right, regardless of the outcome, regardless of what happens. We waste so much energy and so much time trying to control the lives we get to dictate how we will live, what will happen to us, what things we will enjoy. Peter says you can stop worrying about all of that. All you need to do, he says, is entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. Leave all of that to God. And for you, just do good. Just do good. Just do what's right. Don't count the cost of it. Don't ask yourself whether it will get you ahead. Just do what's right. Just do what Christ did. Because we've spent so much time on suffering, I think it's natural as a consequence that we meditate on it. That We've spent a lot of time over the last few months thinking about the ways in which we suffer and what it means and how to deal with it. Yet I think the point of what we're being told here is exactly the opposite. It's not to meditate on our suffering, to reflect on it, to to seek all of the deep meaning and all that we've suffered, try to come to terms with it and make peace with it. The point is almost this. Just take it for granted. Oh yeah, you'll You'll suffer. If if it's God's will, you'll suffer. But suffer for doing good. And be preoccupied with that. Meditate on the good. Focus on doing the good. Let the rest take care of itself. Focus on the good that you can do. And on the glory to come. This is how Jesus lived. He wasn't silent when silence would get Him ahead. Jesus proclaimed the truth. He suffered for it. His eyes were fixed on a future glory that justified all of it. We're called to live the life that He lived. To do the good that we can do. And focus on the glory that is to come. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org.